What is up, Brad fans? How are you doing? It is so good to be back. And I know it's been an extended hiatus, a little more uh, than I had intended. We had a bunch of moving parts over here, big move, uh, vacation mixed in there. And I'm still figuring out how to make all this work while on parental leave. So to those of you who tweeted or messaged me uh, suggesting topics or just saying, hey, what the hell, cursing me out, where's my content? I hear you and I appreciate you and thank you for the messages. And I'm going to outright guarantee, though, that this is worth the wait. This episode is worth the wait because this episode is bringing us back into one of my favorite topics and a listener favorite as well. Psychedelics. Can you believe it has been two years since this show, Too Brad For You, first got an invite as an, an accredited member of the media, of the press, to cover the Insight 2019 conference in Berlin? Well, I guess I didn't screw it up because we were allowed back for the second Insight conference, Insight 2021, again, held in Berlin. Berlin feels like a fitting place for a meeting about psychedelic research, you know, it's got a hip vibe. At least before COVID, had a vibrant club scene, artsy in nature, rich history. But like inside itself, Berlin also has science credentials. You know, it's the home of the Humboldt, Humboldt University. Uh, the famous Charité Hospital is there and was actually right by uh, the conference venue. And, you know, this was one of the things that attracted me to the Insight Conference and the foundation that puts it on, the Mind Foundation, is that they really are about science. Science first, let's say. And, and don't get me wrong, there's plenty of tie-dye at the meeting, too. Uh, and they do make a point to bring together, you know, artists and other people, speakers um, that you might not think of as hard science, you know, so philosophers, uh, sociologists, um, people that are studying sort of culture and history, these kind of things. But they mix these people in with the biologists, the therapists, the neuroscience, the psychologists. And this meeting, you know, and the people that I've met at, at Mind that work for Mind um, and that are just attending the meeting as well, you know, they tend not to shy away from these slippery topics um, that sometimes dominate meetings that are, that are dedicated to altered states, so some of the metaphysical stuff, some of the philosophical, philosophical stuff. Um, but at Insight and with Mind, they always ground it uh, in research and what we actually know and what we can actually prove. Um, and first and first, mostly they are really dedicated to, to, to helping people who are suffering. So it's about harm reduction and promoting a realistic data, data driven discussion on the benefits of these substances to society, but also the risks and where we need to maybe slow our roll a little bit. So I, I always appreciated um, the folks at Mind uh, and the Insight Conference because it's one of the few that I've seen that really, you know, takes a scientific uh, approach and it's and is really all about, you know, data, wherever it can be. But they also, they acknowledge where they don't know, where the data can't show them the, the, the actual answer, and they like to have the discussions about, you know, the subjective stuff, the sort of some of the more psychological stuff, or like I said, uh, even metaphysical or uh, cultural, things that you can't really put a number on, you know. Uh, and so 
I just love going to this meeting and I tip my hat to them for for creating this space where all of these different people come together. Um, and I also, I just want to give a shout out to uh, the people at Mind uh, and the co-founders of Mind, Henrik and Andrea Jungeburle, because they've just always treated me very kindly and, you know, they've supported the show in the sense that they let us, they let me come uh, as a member of the press and they give me their time in interviews and stuff. Um, so I just wanted to say thank you to the Mind Foundation for that, for having us there once again. I, I very, very much enjoyed the meeting. And going into the conference this time around, I was thinking less so about the clinical uses of psychedelics. I had covered those in the first uh, episode I did uh, about Insight 2019, and also more in depth in the episode I did for the Undark Magazine podcast. I'll link to both of those in the show notes. You can check them out if that's where your interest lies. But in this episode, I'm thinking about psychedelics more broadly. You know, you hear a lot of grandiose claims about uh, a psychedelic society and how it would be so beneficial if more people did these things, if we had unfettered access and all this stuff. And I got to say, by far, the, the clinical work is still the most important work being done right now. Uh, and it has the biggest chance to impact the world positively, you know. Um, and in many ways, it's probably the linchpin in determining uh, the broader integration of psychedelics into society. If the trials continue to show benefit and medical use gains approval, then substances like MDMA and psilocybin might take a path similar to the one marijuana did, where first it was medically uh, approved and then became uh, legal. Um, the problem I have, and a lot of others have, when thinking about the broader use uh, and access to these drugs is, like I said, the hype, the sort of grandiose claims that get made about, you know, psychedelics could solve the climate crisis. You can just Google psychedelics and climate crisis and you'll find <laughs> tons of articles out there talking about how psychedelics will solve the climate crisis or political polarization or, you know, on and on and on. How many times have you have, have I heard if Donald Trump only took mushrooms, then he wouldn't be such an asshole and there wouldn't be political polarization or we wouldn't have these uh, populist leaders, all of this kind of stuff, you know. Uh, society would be more tuned with nature, all of this kind of stuff. Um, and this led me to search out talks when I was coming to Insight uh, this year and speakers at the conference who could talk about psychedelics and sort of what they are and what they aren't so that we can maybe find a way to cut through some of the hype um, and understand better what we might expect and what, I guess, and more importantly, what we shouldn't expect from this new wave of psychedelic interest and research. And this took me on a journey through the conference program, first looking at the biology behind the effects of psychedelics. What do we know about how these substances alter brain function and perception? And what does that tell us about how we might use these substances? Uh, for therapy or or even for well-being and, and beyond. Um, do therapists themselves working with patients see a pathway for broader use? Uh, I also attempted to find out if the data actually exists to support some of these claims about you know, general benefit to the population. Um, can psychedelics improve public health in general is one of the talks uh, that I attended. And thankfully, I also stumbled upon another area connected to all of this, uh, you know, it's another facet of the pro-arguments for bringing psychedelics into society, and it relies on a narrative that these substances have widespread historical use 
in healing and religious ceremonies. But is this true? And I was fascinated by what I found, and I'm sure you will be too. But first, as always, please, please, please reach out to us. Let us know what you're thinking. Uh, let us know what you want us to cover. To the people that did so uh, during the hiatus, again, I want to say thank you uh, to reaching out. And we will get to some of those topics that you have uh, suggested. So the best way to get in touch with the show, subscribe to the show so that you never miss an episode, rate, comment, all of those things that really help us out um, is to go to tobradforyou.wordpress.com. All of the information is there, all in one spot, tobradforyou.wordpress.com. You can email us. Uh, we have a Gmail address, tobradforyou at gmail.com. We have a way that you can leave voice messages through a service called SpeakPipe. Um, you can subscribe to the show. You can wherever you get your podcast, Spotify, Apple, whatever. Hit the subscribe. Shows up in your feed. Um, and we really do want to hear uh, what you have to say. Uh, and we'd love it if you followed us followed us along on this uh, on this journey. Uh, Twitter, Instagram at Too Brad for You uh, are the handles for both of those. So thank you, thank you, thank you. Really, all you got to do is one-stop shop at the website, toobradforyou.wordpress.com. And if you feel so inclined, if you do like this show, and I will be putting out more regular content, I promise you that, um, you can donate through our Buy Me A Coffee page. Thank you very much, folks. And with that, let's get into my coverage of the Insight 2021 meeting in Berlin. So let's start with the biology. We don't talk about it as much, but I think it's important that we do. Understanding what these things do in the brain will, like I said, not only help us wield them more efficiently with patients, but it also offers greater insight into how the brain works fundamentally. So I tracked down Dr. Ketrin Preller, who is a keynote speaker at the meeting, and she has been researching the effects of psychedelic on the brain for about a decade. And she says we still really don't know exactly how psychedelics work to produce the clinical benefits that we're seeing in the trials with the people with depression, for example. And so she does this work with the help of MRI brain scans, which reveal how the brain networks interact and process information during altered states. Our brain is usually in constant interaction, either with you know, our body, with ourselves, or with um, the environment. And the information that reaches the cortex for further processing is usually filtered by a brain area called the thalamus. Now, under the influence of psychedelics, this filtering function of the thalamus does not work as it usually does. And we see that via an uh, increased connectivity from the thalamus to certain cortical areas. And specifically, we've seen that the thalamus is more strongly connected, especially to the sensory brain regions, to the regions that process the input we get from the environment and from within ourselves. So um, this, first of all, um, well, kind of explains why we have this increased sense of you know, uh, light, for example, or, or changes in our visual perception and our auditory perception and so on. Now, once this information has reached the cortex, 
It needs further processing. It needs to be integrated into a coherent picture. It needs to be connected to memories. It needs to be connected to planning about the future. So in the cortex, we have seen that the, uh, that the sensory brain regions, which are more strongly connected to the thalamus, are also more strongly connected with each other. So again, heightened sensory processing. But this heightened sensory processing is not counterbalanced by integrative capacities. So that means that our um, association brain regions, though the brain regions that bring all this information together, they are loosely connected with each other. Um, meaning that the way we integrate the sensory information is different in the psychedelic state. So in an altered state, the brain's sensory input filter is more connected to regions that process sensory input and less connected to regions that make sense of all of this incoming data. And as Dr. Priller explained to me, this new arrangement of sorts changes the way our brains would normally bring together and process information. The way it's bringing together this information is, uh, is different. And that kind of explains some of the phenomena, so this altered perception of ourselves or these visual alterations. But it also might explain some of the clinical effects. Um, for example, a lot of um, patients report that psychedelics help them to you know, take a step back, to look at themselves in a new way, to look at their problems in a new way, um, to find new solutions to their problems. So basically to break out of rigid thinking pa patterns that have been limiting their actions for you know, the course of their disease. Um, and this and that makes sense because if we are bringing information together in a different way and connecting information differently, um, it kind of explains why you can you know, break free from these rigid thinking patterns and look at yourself in a new way and maybe find new solutions to all problems. This made sense to me. We have usual patterns of thinking or pathways of signal transmission and psychedelics scramble those pathways. But Dr. Preller explained that it's not simply that incoming signals are getting shipped off along different routes to different regions, but it's more about connectivity. How are the brain regions connecting these incoming bits of data? I think it's really more about how we connect information. Um, and um, the way we bring information together has an impact on how we learn from past experiences and how we plan our actions next. And I think um, this, you know, different way we connect information might really help to, you know, break free from these rigid thoughts um, that, you know, a lot of patients are, um, are suffering from. While this is an enticing clue not only to how these drugs produce altered states, but also why a patient may benefit from them, as is always the case with science, this has really only produced more questions. Are the physical effects like uh, how receptive the brain is to stimulus or the density of serotonin receptors the key to all of this? Or are the psychological effects more important? Do you feel more socially connected when under the influence? Nailing down these effects will have a direct implication on how best to deliver this therapy, says Dr. Priller. We need to test these hypotheses and see which effects really contribute to making people feel better. And then once we know that, 
we need to leverage this knowledge to make psychedelic-assisted therapy as good as it can be, because um, all, these, uh, all these mechanisms have implications. For example, um, if we're talking about changes in emotional processing, um, we need to know when these changes happen, how long they last, um, which, because it has implications on what we discuss during our therapy sessions with the patients and how we can help them um, to, for example, approach trauma that they have experienced. Does it make sense to do that while they are under the influence? Because then we know that the amygdala is less reactive to negative stimuli. But we also know it might, um, it might last a little bit longer. So maybe we have a window of opportunity that lasts for about a week um, where we can really discuss these um, trauma to our negative life events um, in death with our patients, which will then have a long-lasting effects for them to, to get better. Um, but um, we also know that there might also be a, um, an increased reactiveness the day after. Um, and we, we, we see that when we look at the brain scans. So maybe we, we need to be very cautious about um, the timing, as well as the dose when we, um, when we do the, the, the non-pharmacological therapy. And um, I think these questions really need to be answered to optimize the therapeutic approach and make sure that the patients have long-lasting benefits from these very few, often only single administrations of the substance. I finished up this interview with Dr. Preller by asking her, very simply, what do you think psychedelics are? For me as a scientist, I think um, psychedelics are two things. Um, in a way, they are a window into brain chemistry, which allows us to test specific neuropharmacological hypotheses about how the brain works. So I'm convinced that this research brings us a lot of insight into, um, into how the brain works and, and based on that knowledge we can develop novel therapeutics. The second thing they are for me is a potential new treatment approach for um, various uh, mental health issues. Um, but they are probably not the magic bullet that we sometimes seem to think they are. A useful tool. Check. Window into studying the brain and by extension therapy. Check. These are some of the things that psychedelics can be. But what they aren't is a magic bullet. And this was a view shared by many of the researchers at this conference, including Dr. Gerhard Gründe, who is a psychiatrist and psychotherapist, and he is helping to lead one of the largest clinical trials of psilocybin therapy in Germany. I caught up with Gerhard on the street outside the bakery we both happened to be having lunch at, and I asked him what he thought of some of the hype surrounding psychedelics. In my view, there's a lot of euphoria um, uh, currently in the field. Um, some people um, think that psychedelics are good for everything. They will sell, solve not only uh, all mental health problems, but also save the problems of the world. I think that's really um, people claiming that, and they exist, um, people claiming that 
um, are living in a bubble. Like Preller, Dr. Grinder believes these can be a new tool in the toolbox and that they may change psychiatry in some ways. Although he told me he doesn't think they will completely replace the current system. Rather, they'll just be an addition to it. And he stressed that of course, of course, of course, more data is needed. He did acknowledge though, that there could be a benefit to quote unquote, healthy people. I, I'm, I'm convinced that also healthy people will, um, some, some healthy people will benefit from uh, psychedelics in terms of um, well-being, well-being, mindfulness, connectedness with other people, connected with, co connectedness with nature, but uh, they will not uh, solve all cultural, sociological, soci socio-economic problems of the world. So how might psychedelics impact society? One way to look at this question is through the lens of public health. And I had flagged a talk in my conference program titled, Can Psychedelics Improve Public Health? That was being given by Dr. Harry Sumnall. He is a professor in substance use at the Public Health Institutes at Liverpool John Moores University. He delivered his talk online due to COVID. Uh, so I reached him at his office after the conference and I first got him to explain to me just exactly what is public health. So I think in very simple terms, public health is trying to understand how the world around us impacts upon individual health and population level of health. So one of the important characteristics of public health is it's about the health of populations. Now that doesn't necessarily have to be whole populations at the country level. It can be groups, subgroups, neighborhoods, communities, or even uh, things as small as families and friendship groups. This is a pretty broad scope, how the environment affects the health of, indivi of an individual and of all the different groups that that individual exists in. But you can see how it's the right place to look for insight into how psychedelic use affects individuals and then the communities and societies that they live in. There's been interest in this way, you know, way back uh, to the 1960s, where the first population level experiments happened in, in many North American and Western European countries extending into the, the 70s, that, that, that yes, there was therapeutic research taking place and there was recreational uh, experiences, of course there was, but then there was also, I think, an understanding, well, or a motivation at least, well, what else could these compounds actually do? You know, after all, if you go down to motivations for use, th there must be some reason why these compounds are so popular and are so useful uh, beyond the bright colors and uh, uh, some of the more facile, but, but very interesting perceptual changes. So I think there's always been this recognition, but never really a systematic study of this. One of the motivations for psychedelic use that I see a lot regards individual well-being and the idea that through individual betterment, society can improve as a whole. There's a belief that these substances can foster kindness, empathy, creativity, connections to nature, and that this in turn benefits society because people with these traits will be more peaceful. They'll care about the environment. They'll just be better. But there's never been any systematic study of this, says Sumnall. Usually when public health researchers have gotten involved in this field, it has largely been to investigate the negatives or the harms. But Sumnall told me this is starting to change, in part due to the reforms made in cannabis. Cannabis now has a whole industry being developed around its non-medical use, and in particular, well-being applications. 
And uh, I, I, I do perhaps anticipate and expect that in five, 10, 15 years, maybe, that we, we could even be having similar discussions around psychedelics and public health impacts, particularly well-being. And there's been some interesting, but tend to be limited research that's been looking at this. And I think because of the nature of the research and because it's very early days yet, it's kind of focused on more the absence of harm rather than benefits and positive uh, outcomes uh, exclusively. Showing that there is an absence of harm doesn't necessarily imply benefit, though. However, it is still important to know what the risk level is in order to have an honest conversation as to what psychedelics can and can't do or how they should and shouldn't be used. The level of risk is relatively low and certainly uh, the overall level of harm is a lot lower than many other controlled substances. So there's a, 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 an interesting body of research which has looked at that and actually suggested that levels of psychological health in general are probably equivalent to uh, people who don't use psychedelics, which is useful in itself because it helps to counter some of the, the media narratives, some of the policy narratives, and begins to open up the space to begin to do some additional investigations and think about additional applications of psychedelics with regards to uh, public health. Unfortunately, it is really hard to do these kind of investigations at a population level. And it seems to me that there's a misconception in popular media and discourses as to how rigorous the study of psychedelic benefits beyond clinical use really is. I think it's really important to, to talk about what kind of research has been done. Uh, because of course, of all the clinical studies and the neuroscientific and psychopharmacological studies, you administer psychedelics to individuals, a carefully controlled dose under lab conditions or carefully controlled conditions. So you can study that quite easily. Uh, you, you, I wouldn't say you, you could never do that in, in the general public, but at the moment it would be very difficult and perhaps unethical to do that. Instead of controlled experiments with controlled doses and researchers following up with participants over time, public health research relies on survey data or other large databases such as demographic or crime statistics. And from here they can start to piece together different outcomes that may or may not be associated with people who have reported using psychedelics. These big surveys often often have different modules where they'll address things such as self-reported criminality or perhaps problematic use of substances or other types of behaviours. Uh, it's, it's generally shown that uh, individuals who report more than a lifetime use of psychedelics tend to have better health and social outcomes, uh, which is quite interesting and it's quite exciting. Uh, but then you have to think about, well, how do we interpret that? So if you think, for example, about uh, uh, criminal behaviour or involvement in violence, interpersonal violence, this is a behaviour which is determined by who you are, of course, individual level factors, but, but your relationships with others. It's, it relates to your own uh, uh, history, perhaps of adversity, experiences of violence, uh, your social interactions, uh, where you live, 
what your employment and education is, all of these really important things, which in public health, we know are essential in, 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 trying, to, in trying to understand health. And then suddenly to argue, well, a single exposure to psychedelics is somehow associated with improvements in these behaviours. Now, from a very basic level in terms of, well, how, how, how on earth can psychedelics have these profound effects on behavior or people's interactions with the world around them. Now, there might be some hidden mechanism that we don't know, uh, some mysterious property of psychedelics, and we need to keep an open mind of, about this. But I think perhaps it's those sorts of studies are telling us more about the types of people who decide to use psychedelics in the first place. And it's the whole correlation versus causation. I think many researchers recognize this, uh, but I do think there's a tendency perhaps to overstate some of these benefits based on some of that research. And I think that in part that's being driven by some of the exciting work emerging from clinic, the clinic, that somehow uh, we're more likely to believe that psychedelics will have these miraculous properties without, without asking uh, these big and important questions about scientific methodologies. Dr. Sumnall offered up another example demonstrating how this data can easily be oversimplified. There's a clear relationship between uh, opioid use, uh, illicit opioid use here, and the harms that people are experiencing. But in those people who were also using psychedelics, opioids didn't seem as harmful. That, that's an oversimplification. Now, that, that, that also suggests, well, is it something inherent in the pharmacology or psychopharmacology of of psychedelics? Is it something about behavioral patterns or behavioral revelations that psychedelics bring? Or again, is it something about the types of people who are attracted to use psychedelics? They have a different view, a different perspective on substances, which in some as to yet unknown way uh, also impacts on their relationship with other potentially more harmful harmful substances. They're just some illustrative examples to suggest that yes, there's some kind of relationship taking place, but we don't really know what's happening. For Sumnal, and like many others I heard from at this conference, caution is really the theme of the discussion. So I think we need to be very careful there that what we're talking about, as I've said several times, very complex behaviours, of which uh, uh, the brain and the individual and the individual choice is only one component of that. But even if there was this close relationship, as I've, as I've said, how do we then operationalize this? Despite the lack of rigorous public health data, psychedelics are still increasingly getting branded as an overall wellness tool, substances that can enlighten and guide us to a better state as individuals and as a society. And another popular argument for this comes from the narrative that these substances are ancient, and they've been used by humans, by indigenous cultures, uh, as healing tools for centuries. Which is another story that, according to anthropologist Dr. Manveer Singh, also lacks data. There's this idea, or this set of ideas, that's very popular in the larger discourse about psychedelics, and even in the research community, that psychedelics have been used for millennia. Not only have they been used for millennia, but around the world. And they have often been used in shamanic contexts for therapeutic healing, especially there's this image of a specialist kind of giving psychedelics to a patient and then the patient undergoing some psychological healing. I sometimes think of this as this ancient worldwide psychedelic shamanism hypothesis. Dr. Singh is a postdoctoral researcher whose work focuses on shamanism, and he has a particular interest in whether an ancient worldwide psychedelic shamanism tradition 
actually existed. This idea is super popular, but a problem with it is that the people who are endorsing it, who are spreading it, really rarely engage with the anthropological literature. And what that means is they really rarely look at what we actually know about human history, what we know about societies around the world. There are some examples that they really like to, to latch on to. Oh, in this particular cave, there was a painting of a psychedelic shaman. Or if we interpret certain myths in particular ways, that suggests that mushrooms were used pretty widely. But they don't take like a systematic, rigorous exa examination, a rigorous approach to the data. He next told me a fascinating story about one man's attempt to actually do this systematic analysis and what it was that he found. Maybe the best example of this was a project by this PhD student, Martin Fortier. He's a French PhD student. And so he built this database that he calls HUTHAC, hallucinogenic usage throughout time and cultures, I think, the HUTHAC database. And so he set out to look at more than a thousand cultures, look at reports that anthropologists have written about these cultures, to look at missionary reports, to look at explorers' diaries, to really get a sense of kind of looking through the eyes of people who engaged with these cultures. Are these people using hallucinogens? How often? And he, for every usage of hallucinogens, would document what hallucinogen was used, in what dose, was it, for, was it in hallucinogenic doses, um, what was the context, who was using it, et cetera. And really critically, how reliable is the evidence? So really reliable evidence is the observer is a trained anthropologist and they're watching people consume psychedelics. Really crappy evidence is they look at a statue that you know, is kind of a misshapen rock and they're like, this is evidence of a sacred mushroom cult. And so he surveys this evidence and really tragically, he died halfway through the project. He was still a PhD student, um, but he, he got cancer. And I met him right after he got sick. I was visiting Paris and he was telling me about a lot of his work, including this project. So he passed away, but before he passed away, he wrote up some of his preliminary findings online. And what he found was that psychedelics, at least when we look at the reliable evidence, they don't seem to be ubiquitous. Rather, they seem to really be restricted to a couple cultures, a couple regions in like Central America and Middle America and South America. So the, the biggest examples are maybe peyote in the Rio Grande area in southwards, psilocybin mushrooms in Mexico. And so if we actually think about that, the way that he counts it up, he says that if we are most liberal, it's less than 5% of cultures in the Americas. On a global scale, less than 1% of cultures, pre-colonial cultures, were using psychedelics. Now, these findings do get pushback from folks who say interpretations of myths, paintings, and other artifacts clearly point to a role for psychedelics in the creation of religions and cultures of people all around the world. Some people in response to this say, okay, yeah, you're talking about botanical evidence or you're talking about observations of people consuming psychedelics, but look at the myths, look at the cave paintings. And I think that's fair. I think these can provide interesting things, but I think they're very open to interpretation. And I think they, we should see them with some skepticism or we should be a little dubious without corroborating evidence. As part of the talk that he gave at Insight and some of the articles that he's published on this topic, Dr. Singh has performed a preliminary analysis looking for some of this corroborating evidence that mushrooms specifically have influenced cultures around the world. There is this ethnographic database it is 
again, like explorers reports, anthropological observations of hundreds of cultures. And so what they have is 50,000 paragraphs about the mythology of 321 cultures. So there are these claims, oh yeah, the sacred mushroom is, is widespread in the mythologies of the world. When we look at the 50,000 paragraphs on the mythology of 321 cultures, only 10 paragraphs use the word mushroom. 10 paragraphs in 10 cultures. Um, if we look at peyote, it's 305 paragraphs in 10 cultures. So not only are mushrooms very infrequently discussed, but even within the cultures in which they're discussed, it's, it's, it's quite rare. And this is despite mushrooms being found all over, all over the world. Peyote is found in like a, a small area in the Rio Grande and, and slightly southwards. Mushrooms are found on every continent, yet according to this database, feature very little. Granted, this is a preliminary analysis, but it goes to show how we easily accept this narrative without even really looking for evidence without even really doing the most cursory check as to whether or not it's true. And Singh went on to tell me why he believes this narrative continues to be popular and what some of the actual harms or dangers may be in just blindly accepting it. People are really into this story because for psychedelic enthusiasts, for researchers, it says that this is not some scary substance. This is an ancient substance that is at the core of human religion. Of course we should use it in medicinal contexts. We're not experimenting with some scary thing. We're, we're using a practice, a, a method of healing that humans have used for millennia. The dangers are about the kinds of stories we tell or the kinds of stories we push about indigenous people. So in one way, if we say that shamanism all over the world involves psychedelics, we're kind of projecting an image onto these other people. I work in Indonesia. I have studied shamanism for, for quite a few years. There are no psychoactive substances involved, but as soon as I tell someone, they have this very particular image, like, oh, you work in Indonesia with shamans, people are taking psychedelics and it's in this very particular way. No, it's in fact very different. Um, but we kind of make up the story to, to push our own ideological ends and then essentially dictate what other cultures look like. That's one danger. Another danger, very closely related, is that we take away people's history. So for instance, there is, people love this idea that ayahuasca has been used in the Amazon for millennia. In fact, when we look at the history, ayahuasca seems to have diffused through the Amazon in the last 300 years. Now, this is of course a very controversial topic, but I think that the evidence that is growing that when we actually engage with people's indigenous stories, when we look at things like ayahuasca music, and we look at the diffusion of rubber trading, it really suggests that it's it probably diffused in the last couple hundred years. Um, but by telling these stories, by saying ayahuasca has been used a thousand years, we say that, look, these people use ayahuasca right now, and these people are you know, economically and politically marginalized, marginalized, they kind of embody our notion of an indigenous people, they must have been using it for a thousand years. Oh, these people like use peyote in the Great Plains, they must have been using it for a thousand years. We don't see them as flexible innovators who engage, who use things strategically, who are engaged in kind of a global market. We see them as relics of the past. Turns out, psychedelic use may not be as widespread or as ancient as we thought it was. And according to Singh, the stories we're telling ourselves about the ways in which psychedelics are used, were used, are also incorrect, or at the very least, incomplete. People really like to endorse this narrative that 
shamans have been administering psychedelics for psychological healing for millennia. In fact, the story is much more complicated, if not completely different. When we look at how psychedelics are used, it's rarely in the context of this model where this is medicine and you consume the medicine and then you undergo psychological healing. It's rather, I as the practitioner, very frequently, I as the practitioner consume this substance and can engage with some unseen reality and draw services. I can become an animal, I can battle enemies in neighboring groups, I can fight witches. But it's also used for many other purposes. It's used for divination, it's also used for sorcery. So there's this incredible video that Tim Ash and Napoleon Chagnon shot among the Yanomama called Magical Death. It shows shamans snorting DMT and using that for healing. You know, they battle witches, but then using that also to destroy babies in, an, in a neighboring group. So they channel the powers of spirits and they use those spirits to, to kill babies. And I think what's important about this example is that it demonstrates that the ways that people are using psychedelics are much more complicated, in some ways, in some instances, more sinister than we often assume. Um, I don't think that should demonize psychedelics, but I think that should say that people around the world aren't behaving in the ways that our stories want them to behave. They are creative, they're flexible, and they have a like a variety or a diversity of needs, and they've used psychedelics really flexibly to achieve them. Blindly falling prey to this single narrative, we actually erase the humanity of these people, ignoring the fact that like every other human, they have a wide range of emotions and motivations for doing the things that they do. In a way, it perpetuates like a noble savage image. It's saying that, yes, they were beautiful healers and they had this really healthy relationship with nature that, you know, we wish we had. But in fact, it's like, no, they're complicated people. They have desires. They, um, they have enemies. And they also have a, a religious practice or a spiritual practice that is much more complicated and in many ways much more interesting. At this point, it was becoming clear to me that a lot of the claims, the hype, the promises regarding uh, what psychedelics could do are being made without really engaging with the data. So where that data does exist, is it being honestly scrutinized? And where it doesn't exist, well, it needs to be produced. But no one I talked to was opposed to the idea that these substances are beneficial. In fact, most people I spoke with do see a role for them in our societies. But what that role is, and how best we implement that remains to be seen. So I turned to Henrik Jungeberlin, who is also a researcher in public health and psychotherapy and psychiatry, and one of the founders of the Mind Foundation. I spoke with him and wanted to get his take on the current state of psychedelic research use, and again, what can we expect from psychedelics and what shouldn't we expect from psychedelics? What we can already say that um, psychedelics have therapeutic value at least for some groups in or some patient groups yeah um, and likely we'll find more indications more um, more ways that psychedelics can be used for suffering uh, people they also have seem to have a value for self-development but it's very very unclear if the chaotic self-development that happens um, all over the world uh, will lead to very positive uh, results in a large number of people. This stood out as an important point to me, because we can acknowledge that altered states 
can be a path to self-development. But we should ask the question, will just doing a psychedelic, this chaotic self-development Henrik mentions, automatically lead to positive change in individuals and therefore society? Jung barely doesn't think so, but he says that psychedelics may play a role in how we tackle our great societal challenges. Psychedelics will not make people enlightened. Psychedelics will not uh, solve the climate crisis. It's not happening because the thinking is completely wrong. Uh, but they could have an influence of, on some people who want to tackle these problems uh, in, in society. So in order to solve the climate crisis, uh, you have to uh, think about a lot of processes, from food production to airplanes to, to energy. Uh, um, and this has to be done with, with clear plans. But the people who do it could be inspired by uh, psychedelic experiences. We don't have uh, another argument why uh, psychedelics will not solve the climate crisis and other social issues is um, that it will take a lot of time to build, I mean decades, even hundreds of years, to build social um, contexts in which people can yeah, immerse in such experiences in a, in a good way. People just dropping acid will not come up with solutions for the uh, climate crisis. In this view, psychedelics can be thought of as a tool a tool for creativity enhancement, a tool for inspiring new ways of thinking about a, a problem, a way to step back and view things from a new perspective, very similar to the things that Dr. Preller was talking about in the beginning of this episode. But to get something out of that, it requires that an individual understand that that is what's going on and that they put in a little bit of work either before or after the trip to interpret what it was that they experienced. What a lot of researchers in the last decades came up with is the idea that the real thing does not necessarily happen um, within the psychedelic state in the, in the, under the influence of psilocybin, the mushroom. But it happens in the way that people relate to that state afterwards. So make something out of the experience. Create a behavior that results as, uh, as a consequence of an insight in, in the psychedelic experience. Building this kind of culture or work ethic around psychedelic use in our modern societies where for a long time in many places these substances were banned and shunned is going to take some time, as Henrik said. But he did offer up some thoughts as to how this might actually look. At least our group can imagine that we should uh, institutionalize uses of these substances for creativity, for self-development. Why institutionalize? That sounds pretty boring, I guess, yeah? So, um, modern society works very different from an Amazon tribe with 120 or 400 people. In a modern society, in an urban environment, you have people living from 50 nations, maybe 200 nations, with completely different religious backgrounds, ideological backgrounds, um, very different capabilities and very different states of mental health. Um, Institutionalized means to build places with responsible people who know what they're doing, who can help people to, um, to work through that enormously complex process of a psychedelic experience. As I was getting ready to leave, 
I asked Henrik about the dangers of going too fast with this movement and what advice he might have for the research community or media people like myself who are excited about the potential of the current renaissance we're having. Particularly thinking about um, the popularization of psychedelics right now through books, Michael Pollan and so on. Um, we have to take it cool as society and, uh, and slow, slow down with uh, chaotic implementation of these substances. I'm completely against people propagating everybody use, uh, should use uh, psychedelics on a large scale. Uh, I also not only know, but in our own clinics we meet people who uh, definitely got fucked up by... Um, do, can I use that word? Again? Yes, of course. Yeah. <laughs> uh, by, by psychedelics. Uh, got into uh, psychotic states or their... Uh, simply their ambivalence got worse, uh, worse while they uh, tried to solve that ambivalence problem in their life. So what is really needed in, in psychedelic therapy but also psychedelic self-development are responsible, knowledgeable, empathetic others. There's a lot to gain from altered states of consciousness but it's not to gain by just taking the drug, it's to be gained by working on that altered states of consciousness and giving it a place in everyday life. To wrap things up here, personally, I am on board with the idea that these substances can be beneficial. And I used to be of the mindset that they would be beneficial for everyone, or at least most people. In my younger days, maybe even earlier episodes of this podcast, you may have heard me touting some of these ideas uh, that I actually brought into question in this episode. That psychedelics are an ancient healing tool, uh, and broader access will improve society as a whole. Now, I tend to side more with folks like Henrik Jungeberl and Gerhard Gunder, Dr. Preller, Harris Somnol, all of the people I spoke to in this, in this podcast. Having a structured way in which these drugs are used and some sort of a guideline for what to do with that experience once it is over makes a lot of sense to me if you want to maximize that experience beyond, hey, Music sounds cooler and lights look sweet. On the other hand, I'm not opposed to that sort of use either. And I think, you know, healthy consenting adults should be allowed to use these drugs if they want to make music sound sweet. And this is going to be the upcoming challenge, is how do we build a cultural container for psychedelic states where they're respected but also available to everyone who needs or, or just wants? And as commercial interests get involved, access may be limited only to those who can afford it. This is another big question. But it seems to me, and this is a classic Brad sitting on the fence opinion, that outright unfettered access, while maybe not super harmful, is maybe not the best use of these substances. But keeping them out of reach and only for specialized use is not the way either. There has to be some kind of a middle ground. And I'm very excited to see how this plays out because the experiments are happening all over the world. And I'm glad that there's an organization like MIND and a conference like Insight that exists to host these debates. Well, folks, that is it. That is all. I hope you enjoyed it. If you wanted to find out more about MIND or the Insight Conference, um, check the show notes for links to their website. Uh, and... Where can you find those show notes? You guessed it, our website, tobradforyou.wordpress.com. 
There you can also find ways to follow the show, rate the show, comment, uh, send me an email, send me a tweet, send me an Instagram. Let me know what you thought of it. Let me know what you want to know more about. Uh, and I will do my best to cover that. And as always, if you feel this was worth it, go ahead and donate uh, from our Buy Me a Coffee page, which is all linked to on our website, tobradforyou.wordpress.com. Thank you for your patience. It took me a while to get this out, uh, and I will be back on a more regular schedule. Uh, I, I, can, I can say that with some certainty. Until then, take care, stay safe, and we'll see you next time. Bye for now.